long history, the age of exploration, when Europeans met the locals, part two. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Long History. In this pair of episodes, we're looking back on the documents that we've covered on Long History and picked out some times when the European explorers met some of the local people. We've already covered the first ever meeting between Europeans and people of the Americas, at least in this kind of relatively modern age of exploration. We looked at the leader called Silapu Lapu, who was responsible for the death of Magellan. And we also looked at two of the earliest documents about the exploration of the United States area. One document written by and about Cabeza de Vaca, and another one about Hernando de Soto's expedition around the southeastern United States. And along the way we discussed elements of meetings between Europeans and the local people that could be said to be cliched and that stray from these cliches. Asking the question along the way of what we can actually know about the local people themselves as seen through this document written very much from the point of view of Europeans. Continuing on in this episode we'll cover the later 1500s and the early 1600s in documents involving the early colonization of the Philippines, along with explorations by Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, and then finally Henry Hudson. Now we're covering vastly different people on different continents even, and if anything we just wanted to show here the vast range of people that the Europeans met, even though you could say that the Europeans themselves were often bunching all these people together. Now when we produce these shorter standalone episodes it means that another series is being recorded as we speak, so don't forget to subscribe to find out what that next series is, and if you can't wait until then there's plenty to explore on Long History, so feel free to explore yourself. In the meantime let's get on with this episode, which is the Age of Exploration, when Europeans met the locals, part 2. And we started in 1492 with Columbus and we've now moved on to 1565. And this is the time when a man called Legaspi set up the first Spanish colony on the Philippine Islands in a place called Cebu. Legaspi has taken over a village and all its people have fled. And it appears that his first task, now that he's stabilised the village and has settled in, is to come to some sort of peace with the local leader. And that leader's name is Tupas. And when we say some sort of peace, really that's a euphemism, because we're saying that the Spanish are threatening the local people, and that basically he wants to make them acquiesce to Spanish rule in the area. Tupas had fled with the rest of his people, but after some hostage taking and some negotiation, Legaspi has more or less forced Tupas to come and talk to him. And this is the moment when Tupas arrives. It was almost midday when Tupas arrived in the settlement, and with him came six or seven chiefs and fifty or sixty Indians, who the governor received with kindness and joy. Afterwards, in front of the captains and other people of the settlement, with his accompanying chiefs and Indians present, through Jeronimo Pacheco and the Mur Siramit, he said how much it weighed on him that they hadn't wanted to take his counsel or to believe him, and the pain it caused him that they wandered aimlessly away from their houses, fleeing into the mountains, and how much it weighed on them not to have appreciated the peace and friendship of such a great and powerful prince as the king of Castile, and the protection, favour and help, and the great support that could be offered to his vassals. He would be pleased to know of his determined will, and what his thoughts were, so that the governor could understand him and appreciate him. Until now the suspense had been great, because he was unable to determine anything, 
the goodwill and the pity that he had for them meant that he had not wanted to do them any harm. His heart was kindly towards them, so they should get together briefly and make their view known. Tupas responded that he had desired and still desired peace and friendship. If he had not come to an agreement earlier, the first time that they had dealings, it was because they had nothing to bring or give to his majesty, because, as they were fleeing and absent, the rice and all the supplies that they had were wasted and lost, for reasons which need not be given. They did not even have food for themselves, and it was out of shame for not having anything to bring that he had not dared to come. He begged the governor to forgive him for past events and to accept his peace and friendship, and that they would place themselves under the shelter of His Majesty the King of Castile, and from today on they would be very loyal and faithful vassals. They would obey him and, in his name, the governor. So what can we say here? I suppose we can say here that everyone is behaving as we would expect, not in terms of what actually happened on the ground, but in terms of what we would expect from the write-up of this event. Of course, there must be some truth in this account, but it does strike me at least as being a little too neat, especially when we bear in mind that Legaspi has taken over this village, all the people have fled, Legaspi now holds hostages, and so Tupas is sort of forced to take this position, and then we have the added layer of the actual documentation of this event by the Spanish themselves. And there is lots of elaborate rule-giving and taking in this document which on long history is called the Philippines' first Spanish colony, and relations between the Spanish and the local people are key to the survival of that colony, and particularly this relatively good relationship between Tupas and Legaspi. But I say relatively because of another quote in the document. That first quote was from episode 2, but later on in episode 11 we can see that things have evolved. The colony, after a few months, still exists, but it's far from thriving and the effects of that initial fleeing can still be seen in the following quotation. This was that many natives from Zebu and the whole of this region, who had left their lands because they did not want our friendship, had gathered together in that province, but now realised that they were also not safe in that place. Many of them therefore tried to return to their lands, and some of them came to the governor to ask for a pardon and to ask for permission to return to their houses and villages which was freely given, except for those of Matan and Gavi, who had never wanted peace or to be our friends. So they stayed away and malingered, persuading everyone they could not to make peace or to become friends with us in order to persecute us. And almost all, generally, friends and enemies, were united in attempting to starve us out of there, something that could clearly be seen because those of Zebu and the other villages in the region who were at peace did not sow or plant crops in their lands, and they starved because they tried to starve the Spanish. So here we can see that things aren't quite as tidy as the first quote seemed to imply. In that first quotation, Tupas acquiesces to the Spanish, and the Spanish are happy. Later on, however, we can see how the local people have gathered together and conspired to starve the Spanish out. This includes everyone, friends and enemies, and so we can presumably assume that it includes this Tupas man. So it's an interesting example of early colonisation. In the previous episode in part 1, 
we saw quite a few brief meetings between local people and the Spanish. Here we see the first example that we've covered of the Spanish imposing themselves on an area and not just settling it, but actually taking it over. And if the Spanish have all the weapons, here we can see the local people playing their own best card, which is their knowledge of the local area and their ability to manage its food. Moving on to the next document, and we also move on to the English here. And we're looking at Francis Drake and his voyage around the world. And Francis Drake on his voyage goes around the south of South America and up the western coast of South America and up even to California. Drake's journey began in 1577, so I think we can definitely say that these were the first English descriptions of California. I'm not quite so sure if the Spanish had got quite this far north, and Francis Drake, until he'd got to this point, was far more concerned with his enmity with the Spanish than he was with any of the local people. But there are a few episodes, including episode 14, where Francis Drake and his crew have extensive meetings with the local people on today's California. And I suppose the clash of two different civilizations can be seen in the following quotation. This bloody sacrifice, against our wills, being thus performed, our general, with his company, in the presence of those strangers, fell to prayers, and by signs in lifting up our eyes and hands to heaven, signified unto them that that God whom we serve, and whom they ought to worship, was above, beseeching God, as if it were his good pleasure, to open by some means their blinded eyes, that they might in time be called to the knowledge of him, the true and ever-living God, and of Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent, the salvation of the Gentiles. In the time of which prayers, singing of psalms, and reading of certain chapters in the Bible, they sat very attentively, and observing the end at every pause, with one voice still cried, Oh! greatly rejoicing in our exercises. Yea, they took such pleasure in our singing of psalms, that whensoever they resorted to us, their first request was commonly this, Gah! by which they entreated that we would sing. So really from this meeting between Francis Drake's crew and these local people, it's difficult to reach any conclusion really other than that there's a complete clash of civilizations, The text has described this so-called bloody sacrifice, which if I remember rightly involves the local people beating their chests until they're bloody, and the document sort of revels in this calming down, this pacifying, this, for want of a better word, civilizing of the people just by singing them some psalms and talking about religion. But it's also made quite clear that they couldn't possibly understand any of the words that were said to them. But in this description overall, there's a narrative created, a not untypical narrative, of a type of wild person being tamed by the arrival of these Europeans. And really, this moves on to episode 15, and there's a slightly disingenuous moment here in the text, in a quotation here. They made signs to our general to have him sit down, unto whom both the king and diverse others made several orations, or rather, indeed, if we had understood them, supplications, that he would take the province and kingdom into his hand and become their king and patron, making signs that they would resign unto him their right and title in the whole land and become his vassals in themselves and their posterities, which, that they might make us indeed believe that it was their true meaning and intent, the king himself, with all the rest, 
with one consent and with great reverence, joyfully singing a song, set the crown upon his head. So here we have these Californian people, and of course the term California wouldn't be around them. These people give their lands over to the English, to Drake and to the English. And it's very generous of them to do this, especially bearing in mind that they quite clearly couldn't actually communicate with the English. So this whole episode is rather disingenuous. And more than anything, it reveals the point of view of the English, really. There's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy here. Of course, these people will be changed when they heard about the Psalms and the Bible. Of course, it's quite clear that they handed their lands over to Drake and the English. And ultimately, looking at the text like this, it's hard to unravel the true people being described here from these very clearly one-sided descriptions. Now, after Sir Francis Drake made it around the world in a journey beginning in 1577, 18 years, one of England's most famous buccaneers, Sir Walter Raleigh, decided to explore northern South America, in particular in a search for El Dorado. And again, Sir Walter Raleigh is as much concerned with his enmity with the Spanish as he is with the local people, and he very much uses the local people's enmity with the Spanish in itself to worm his way in to make good relations with them. Now, throughout Raleigh's document, it's quite clear that this is about colonisation and taking over these lands, but he makes no attempt actually to do this. And not many of the local people come to prominence in the document, but one who does is a man called Topiawari. And at least here, it seems to be more of a meeting of equals. And Sir Walter Raleigh takes care not to offend Topiawari and his people, although he has an ulterior motive, which is that he wants to be friends with these people so that when he returns, they will help him against the Spanish. And anyone who's listened to Sir Walter Raleigh's document, The Discovery of Guyana, will know that it's a quite an eccentric document, actually, in particular because there isn't actually much exploration. And there's an interesting detail in episode 15 from this series, where Sir Walter Raleigh explains why he's given up on his explorations and turned round and gone back. And he says it's because of this local leader, Topiawari, who seems to be a very old and wise man. Here's the quotation. He therefore prayed to us to defer it till the next year, when he would undertake to draw in all the borderers to serve us, and then, also, it would be more seasonable to travel. So on one level this is almost an amusing quote, because Walter Raleigh throughout this document has gone on about how much gold there is in the area, but he also is having to reply to accusations that he's been saying that there's lots of gold in the area. But if there is so much gold, why hasn't he brought any back with him? And here he's giving one of his reasons or excuses or whatever you want to call them. He's basically saying that a local leader told him that now was not the time to invade this area, but come back in a year and he'll make sure everyone is on side and they can all do it together. And like much of Sir Walter Raleigh's text, you kind of think, mm, okay, fair enough. But these reasons and excuses keep piling up. He didn't have the tools, he didn't have the men, he didn't have the time or food to be able to extract any of this amazing amount of gold that there is. And it's an interesting detail that he actually seems to make friends with this local leader and uses him as an, one of the excuses as to why he turns back. And that's Sir Walter Raleigh's most significant dealings with local people, this man called Topiawari, and these events took place around episode 15. And the final explorer we're going to look at here dips over into the 1600s, and this is Henry Hudson. 
And Henry Hudson had four journeys altogether. And perhaps the most noteworthy thing here is that in the first two of these journeys, he meets, if not no one, then almost no one, which just shows how inhospitable these areas are. However, in his third journey, he heads over to the coast of today's North America. And it's interesting to note that by this time, well over a century from the start of this age of exploration, there are some French people in the area, particularly around today's Newfoundland. Hudson heads down the North American coast, as far as South Carolina if I remember rightly, and then he heads back up and enters what is today known as the Hudson River in the New York and New Jersey area. And this is episode 14 of this document when we have some of the first significant encounters with local people, and I thought this was quite an interesting quotation. Our men went on land there. We saw great store of men, women and children who gave them tobacco at their coming on land. So they went up into the woods and saw great store of very goodly oaks and some currants. But one of them came aboard and brought some dried and gave me some, which was sweet and good. This day many of the people came aboard, some in mantles of feathers and some in skins of diverse sorts of good furs. Some women also came to us with hemp. They had red copper tobacco pipes and other things of copper they did wear about their necks. At night they went on land again, so we rode very quiet, but durst not trust them. So we can see there that there's a relatively pleasant exchange between the local people and the English. They seem to want to trade, but then at the end of that quotation there's the final twist. We durst not trust them, which perhaps shows the tension that there is between these local people and the new arrivals. And here there's another quotation which perhaps explains that lack of trust. Some men have gone out in a boat and they're now returning to the main ship. And as they came back, they were set upon by two canoes, the one having twelve, the other fourteen men. The night came on and it began to rain so that their match went out. And they had one man slain in the fight, which was an Englishman named John Coleman, with an arrow shot into his throat and two more hurt. So there's a strange kind of dichotomy here and there seems perhaps to be various factions of people here. Some of them are curious about the English and want to explore their ship and trade with these people, but others want to attack them. So there's this underlying wariness and tension between the two groups of people. Now that was Henry Hudson's journey around the New York area. On his fourth and final journey, however, he tries to find a northwest passage to the Far East around the north of Canada. And in doing so, he enters Hudson Bay, as it will eventually be called. And anyone who's followed Henry Hudson's story will know that the ending is not a very happy one. And it's a meeting with one of the local people there. That is perhaps Henry Hudson's last hope. And this quotation takes place in episode 21 of that series. About this time, when the ice began to breathe out of the bays, there came a savage to our ship, as it were, to see and to be seen being the first that we had seen in all this time, whom my master entreated well and made much of him, promising unto himself great matters by his means, and therefore would have all the knives and hatchets which any man had to his private use, but received none but from John King the carpenter and myself. To this savage our master gave a knife, a looking-glass and buttons, 
who received them thankfully and made signs that after he had slept he would come again, which he did. When he came he brought with him a sled, which he drew after him, and upon it two deer skins and two beaver skins. He had a scrip under his arm, out of which he drew those things which the master had given him. He took the knife and laid it upon one of the beaver skins, and his glasses and buttons upon the other, and so gave them to the master who received them. And the savage took those things which the master had given him, and put them into his scrip again. Then the master showed him an hatchet, for which he would have given the master one of his deer skins, but our master would have them both. And so he had, although not willingly. After many signs of people to the north and to the south, and that after so many sleeps he would come again, he went his way, but never came more. Now there's some nuance here, where Henry Hudson asked for two skins from the man, leaving the man unhappy with this trade, and then he never comes again. And really this was the last hope for Henry Hudson, that he would find a source of food and trade with local people. And it's interesting to contrast with that Philippines' first Spanish colony, when the local people tried to starve the Spanish out. Perhaps we could say that Henry Hudson is making a similar mistake here, not realising that this local person had the upper hand really, having the knowledge of the local area that Henry Hudson actually needed. And although many other things happen as well, when this little glimmer of hope fades, the downward spiral begins. So that's the end of the second part of this look at meetings between Europeans and the local people they met during their explorations. I'm well aware here of what I haven't covered. I haven't looked at any meetings with women, for example, so perhaps we'll cover that in a separate episode. And I deliberately haven't come to many conclusions here, particularly because I think what most interests me about these documents is not just what they describe, but how they describe things. So I always find it interesting to note the biases and at least to notice that element of these documents that was kind of pre-written before these meetings even began. These documents are the result of a series of predefined expectations and prejudices, good or bad, and we can always see the ambitions of the people who wrote these documents and took part in these explorations. The local people are often assessed in terms of their usefulness, or they're seen as some kind of obstacle to be overcome. So that's the end of the latest episode of Long History. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do give it a like and share it with any like-minded people. Thank you for listening and goodbye.